Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I'm joined by Aleem Hassan. He's the writer, director, and producer of a new sci-fi feature film, After We Leave. It won Best Feature Film at the London Sci-Fi Festival and recently finished its theatrical run in Los Angeles. We talk about how he made the film, distribution, VFX, and how Bollywood influenced him as a filmmaker. Let's get into it. And here we are with Aleem Hossein. Aleem, how are you, man? Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I, the word grit comes up a lot in my filmmaking life, and I'm very happy to see it in the title of the podcast, so I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited, too. You made a, a gritty film. You made a, uh, a sci-fi feature called After We Leave, and uh, it's fantastic, and I, I can't wait to talk about it. Um, but before we get into that, uh, just for the audience, can you, you give us a little background about yourself? You know, tell us how you got into filmmaking. Yeah, you know, um, I always start by saying that uh, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that I'm a filmmaker who, as I sort of finally started making films, was really interested in sort of mixing genres and, and sort of mixing styles. Uh, and I think that's because as a person, I'm mixed. I'm literally, I'm a mixed race American. My, my dad is a Muslim immigrant from Bangladesh. My mom grew up as a white you know, woman who grew up in a, like a New England Roman Catholic family. And so I had this childhood where I grew up, uh, you know, like we would celebrate Christmas and the Muslim holiday Eid, you know, and I was eating, you know, turkey and turkey biryani at Thanksgiving. And, hmm. but we were also watching Spielberg and Bollywood and European art house films, you know, and wow. like my parents were this very like, you know, global multicultural, uh, couple. Uh, and we were growing up though in, you know, a place that I, I really enjoyed growing up in, but a very sort of homogenous, all white, small Connecticut town. And so I think like the combination of all that was like, I was sort of always looking outward and seeing a lot of different things. And I sort of joked that like the mantra, I think I internalized from my parents was there's like always more than one way to do things. You know, we weren't a family where there was one set of traditions. There was always at least two, if not three, you know. Um, and then as I've sort of made my way through life, I do think that, you know, not to over-psychologize it, but I think it's had an impact. Like, I think I was always interested in so many different kinds of movies, and I think it really taught me, like, how amazing it is to be a film director. Because when you watch movies from all these different cultures, sometimes I was even watching films where there weren't even subtitles. I couldn't understand them. We'd get these old VHS dubs of dubs of Bollywood movies that have been sent over through airmail. And I would just sit there and watch a movie. And it, it, what was funny was it was even in Hindi. My relatives were mostly from Bangladesh. Like even they were only mostly getting it. Uh, but it really taught me like, wow, like here's this art form where like, you know, it's more than just the storytelling. The storytelling is important, but you can do all these things visually and sound wise to like have an impact. And it wasn't like I was eight years old and thinking, oh, I want to be a filmmaker, but it definitely got in there. And uh, yeah, I, I basically, I thought I was always interested in writing and I went to college and I just on a lark, I was, I was doing film studies, but I borrowed this big clunky video camera from the, the film club at the University of Chicago. It's just one of these behemoths. And mm -hmm. uh, I shot a film with it. 
I, you know, this is before YouTube. There were barely any filmmaking books. I, I literally, it's funny now to think about it, but I just assumed I could just figure it out. I didn't even look anywhere else. I didn't talk to anybody else. I just like reverse engineer what I assumed they must do by watching movies. Yeah. And I, and I made this short film, you know, starring myself as so many of uh, our short films do. And the moment I finished it, I sort of like instantly could feel, man, this is not good. And also, <laughs> and also I don't want to do anything else in my life than keep doing this. Mm. Um, and yeah, and so it set me on a, a, a more formalized journey. I did go to film school. I went to UCLA. And uh, even there again, you know, my thesis film there was like a gritty cop film with a dancing orange bear, you know, um, and, uh, and yeah, and I sort of just found this path of like trying to like, I really love genre and that's what sort of brought me to my current state of filmmaking where I think I'm, yeah, just trying to, you know, I love genre films. I love all different kinds of sort of style. I'm a big fan of, you know, auteur directors and I don't just mean, you know, like the sort of you know, uh, like classic old canon, but just all of the sort of people out there in the world right now, especially coming out of, you know, uh, especially Asia and Africa, you know, like Matty Diop and, uh, and Bong Joon-ho, you're just like people who are using style and, and the real tools, but to tell these really meaningful sort of stories. And I do think that all started just sitting there in that TV, you know, watching all those films on VHS in my parents' house. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. You, uh, not only went to film school, but it sounds like your, your childhood was its own film school internationally. It really was. And, you know, and I think in some ways, like, uh, it, I realize now that that was more rare than I understood. I mean, nowadays, I feel like if you want to, if you have the curiosity, obviously, there are so many ways to find so many different kinds of media. But back then, you know, I mean, we would obviously we would go to the Blockbuster video and that was obviously your source for all the American stuff. Uh, but yeah, this fact there was this system of like mailing Bollywood films from back in the old country to my my aunts and uncles was one thing. And then, yeah, my mother in particular was always a sort of like cineast. And like, you know, so the, my, my parents took me to these like art house cinemas, even when we were relatively young. And I think part of it was because, you know, they were international. You know, my mother spoke a couple languages. She's taught Spanish and English. Um, my dad was obviously from another country. And so they just sort of had this worldview and I took it for granted. And it's really actually only to be honest in this process of promoting this movie, as I've done podcasts and, and had conversations with people that I've been able to like explicitly realize how that has informed what I do. Mm -hmm. Now I'm just curious, did, uh, the multiple language rub off on you? Do you speak uh, multiple languages? You know, I wish that I could say that I did. Uh, my brother, <laughs> for example, speaks Spanish and English like very fluently. I have, you know, what I call like a functional Los Angeles Spanish, which is that I can converse about day-to-day -day stuff. I can understand a lot more. Um, and me, I hit a speed bump in college. I was about, I think, about two semesters from fluency, and I hit that one professor that I didn't love, mm. and I dropped it. And I actually regret that now. I think that um, I really do wish that I... Uh, could speak Spanish, not functionally like I sort of can, but like actually expressively. Uh, I think it's pretty amazing. And I think honestly, like every language you add to your brain, I do think like is a different way of thinking. And at, I'm at a point in my life right now where I'm like, I'm really interested in trying to get out of like certain ingrained ways of thinking as a creativity approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a second language would undoubtedly help with that. Definitely. Well, your, uh, your film seems to be international as well. Um, after we leave, uh, one best feature film at, uh, the London sci-fi festival. Yeah. How was yeah. that? You want to talk about that a little? 
I can. Yeah. I mean, that's an extremely important part of this story where, I mean, the, the deal with this movie and we can get into how I made it later, I guess, if you're interested, but like, you know, I struggled to make the movie and I, and there's a long story there, but I finally finished it. It had taken me many, many years on nights and weekends. And I had made what I thought of as a, you know, classic, like American, uh, indie drama that happened to be set in the future. Uh-huh. And I was I was pretty much convinced that what would happen was sci-fi festivals would not really know what to do with it because stylistically, pacing-wise, performance-wise, it's different than a lot of sci-fi movies. And I was I assumed that a lot of the more independently minded, just you know, uh, like non-niche festivals would embrace it because it's in the style of those movies and in conversation with certain dramas that are are popular. But they wouldn't care that it was in the future. And in my experience, the exact opposite happened. I, I got rejected by 22 festivals in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I was really, honestly, at a point of despair. And, 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 it, and they were largely, they were non-genre festivals. And they just kept saying, no, 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 no. And I got this email. I, I'll never forget this day. I got this email from Sci-Fi London. And it was like, they were, they, they were assuming that I was fending off suitors. They're like, dearly. We know we're a small sci-fi festival, but we've been going for many years with passion. And they had this like three paragraph pitch about how committed they were to new voices in sci-fi. And what was funny was I was going to accept instantly because I didn't have any festivals. <laughs> um, but they had written this pitch and I said yes. And it changed the entire trajectory of my film. I mean, I went from there from like wondering if the film would ever come out to got there, wholly embraced by the audiences, wonderful Q&A at the screening got some press, sight and sound, you know, gave us a shout out. And then I won best film. And, uh, and then I went directly from there because of being there to Berlin sci-fi, won best director there. And that sort of started this like momentum, uh, uh, that culminated in us getting the distribution deal. And I don't know whether it's that, you know, I am someone who, who fell in love with a lot of European cinema. Is it that that was why I had more success over there at first? Is it just that, by luck of the draw, I applied to some European sci-fi festivals before some American ones because I did have a very good experience at an American one. Uh, but for whatever reason, it really taught me the value of two things. Well, one was just realizing, especially these days, the festival circuit is so like fractured and so like spread out. You're you can get 22 no's and that's not actually a verdict yet on your film, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, and then it also taught me the value of like a relatively small place. Sci-Fi London is not a huge festival, but it has been running for decades, and it um, and they know genre and they curate well. And getting in there and winning an award there, I honestly think did more for me than if I had gotten into say one of the bigger second tier like major city. Fe- like I wanted to get into San Francisco or Atlanta, you know, mm-hmm. or you know. Uh, I mean, let's put the big five aside. Obviously, anyone would take Sundance, that kind of thing. But like, and it really taught me that I actually think I was much better off landing at that festival because they loved me and they were so passionate. They promoted me. I got press. I got fans. uh, And eventually I got distribution. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, did you actually go to the the festival in London? Yes. And I have to give a shout out to my brother here because I almost didn't go. I think I was a little bit in like, I was a little bit down and out. Like I, I really felt sort of, you know, really honestly sad that the film had not been getting any festival play. And I, when I heard it was all the way in London, I was like, Oh man, like I gotta go all the way to London at that point. You know, this is on me. This is my bad. I hadn't really researched the festival enough to realize what an established and cool festival it was. And I almost didn't go. 
But my brother sat me down and he was like, are you insane? Like, you know how many times in your life you're going to make your first feature and have it debut at his first festival? Once. (laughs) (laughs) You got to go. And he got through to me and we actually made a big – I went out, my wife came out and my brother, my parents even flew out. And it was the best decision I ever made. I mean even if we hadn't won the award, just to go there and realize, yeah, you know, like I don't know that the only reason I make movies is for the audience but – it's one of the reasons and to be there and sit there in a room and see everyone watch the movie and then have a Q&A afterwards uh, where, you know, the first seven, eight questions were not how many days did you shoot in or um, like uh, where was that location? The first seven, eight questions were basically the audience having a debate about the end of the movie. Mm. And that was just amazing. you know. And then at that festival, you know, speaking of how these things sort of, you know, snowball – as soon as the lights came up, two different people from two different festivals, uh, there's Rebecca Fonte from Other Worlds and uh, Leandra Sharon from, from Boston Sci-Fi, literally like cornered me and were like, we want to play this film. You know, they're there at these other festivals. And that was something that I hadn't appreciated about the festival circuit, that you're traveling not just with filmmakers. I've been at like four or five festivals in a row with the same filmmakers at this point. Mm-hmm. But you're also traveling with other festival people. I didn't know that. I, you know, I had never done that sort of feature film circuit. And so, yeah, they saw the film and they played my film at their festivals too. But that was a great moment too because, again, I didn't know if anybody was going to like the movie. I didn't know if the movie had a future even after London. And to have people be like, we want to give it a further life was like so gratifying. Yeah. Well, congrats. And that's wonderful. You had your whole family there and you walked away with the best feature award. Um, I think it's a fantastic film. Uh, Definitely different than most. Um, And, you know, before we go too far, maybe you should give a brief summary about the film, uh, just so people have an idea what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think to frame it, I'll say that, you know, my goal was I wanted to make a movie like Winter's Bone with Jennifer Lawrence or Fish Tank that Andrew Arnold did, if anybody knows that movie, or um, Wendy and Lucy Kelly Reichardt made. I wanted to make a gritty indie drama, maybe even partially improvised, that was also sci-fi. So my movie, uh, After We Leave, is set in a near future Los Angeles. Uh, and it's about a guy who many years ago walked out on his wife, just abandoned his life, left everyone behind, just vanished. And his name is Jack. And Jack has come back to L.A. many years later. Uh, but he's back because he has a visa that he and his wife had applied for. It's come through. He had a visa to emigrate off the planet to a better life on these off-world colonies. Right now, Earth is kind of in recession and water shortages and crime. And But he can't leave without his wife. It's a couple's visa. And so the movie is really a meditation on, like, is this guy back because he has changed or only because he needs his wife for this lottery ticket. And I really think of it as a way of me sort of thinking through ideas about like how much people can change, but also definitely against a political backdrop of the idea of the ways in which visa quotas and shortages and disparities in like where you are and where you want to go can really warp human behavior. Uh, as sort of a backdrop to the film. But at its core, it's about a guy like who I think is trying to figure out if he can change enough to, uh, to have a better life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's such a interesting concept. Did you come up with the, uh, the story concept before the genre or vice versa? <laughs> it all sort of, uh, it all sort of came at once. I would say, I mean, the, the initial, um, like brainstorm for the film was, I was, I, I can remember this very clearly. I was sitting in traffic on Wilshire Boulevard. I was at a red light. 
And in that way that just happens sometimes, like this image just appeared in my head and I, and I just knew it wasn't verbal, but I just knew it's a guy and he's looking at someone. And the question is, has he changed? Hmm. And I realized it was his wife. And I was like, what if I make a movie about a guy who's been gone for a while? And that was like a, an emotional core. But then the, 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 the world and story definitely came very quickly. I always knew what the end of the movie was going to be. And the story itself is very much inspired by my Bangladeshi relatives and their friends' experiences with you know, coming from Bangladesh to America. Uh, and that's sort of twofold. One is that the idea of coming from one of the poorest countries on earth to one of the richest, but also to do that navigating, and I'm talking about legal immigration, but like navigating a system that is like extremely crazy. You know, there are situations where people, you know, there's so few visas and situations where people apply, especially if they have kids, you know, like you can be in the system starting when you're 15, 16, but then the visa comes through when you're 25. And how much your life has changed in that nine years. And then all of a sudden you've started a life, but all of a sudden people are like, whoa, you got one of the lottery tickets. You got to take it or, or the things that you do to try to increase your chances to get those. And so hearing about that system and this, you know, it's funny uh, when I was playing it in Europe, everyone kept asking me if the movie was inspired by like the travel ban and the election of Trump. And those are certainly events that are very much on my mind, but ironically, like I made, I wrote the movie before that. This movie took me a very long time to make, and it's only gotten more relevant, um, sadly. But uh, mm-hmm. but I was wrestling with those issues because my family history with all of those things goes back decades um, in various forms through various political climates and that sort of stuff. But yeah, but I wanted to transpose it to an American context. That's really where the sci-fi part came from it. And part of that was just the idea that sometimes I think when you transpose things sci-fi allows you to talk about things through a different lens, but quite frankly, like the thing that I know in the futures that I imagine as a futurist, they're American futures. You know, I was born here. This is where I grew up, you know? Um, and so I knew that I wanted to tell a story about a future America, um, going through similar things. So in this case, you know, I flipped the equation, America and earth more generally is the poor place. And these sort of rare off world colonies are the, have the promise of a better life. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Um, I love the fact that it is in Los Angeles. Um, <clears throat> I, I live in Los Angeles. So, you know, it's always fun when, when that happens. Uh, but, you know, that makes me think about um, the locations because yeah. um, you're almost, you know, underselling the world in, in a lot of ways. It, it's it's the, the sci-fi elements are are there, but they're subtle and it's not, you know spaceships and explosions and aliens and um what what you do have is done very well um you know like a cityscape in the background um you know various things technology wise um but i'm curious about the locations in in los angeles just because um some of them are just beautiful Um, thank you i mean i worked pretty hard on that you know i think as you know, I, I think you know you're familiar with as well. Like I think when 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 people are making independent films, like uh, there are strengths and weaknesses you have, right? And I do think one of the strengths you can have is if you are a small crew, 
willing to take the time and to risk going to places and getting kicked out or just like trying something and having it worked out, you have the luxury of staging every one of your scenes in the best possible location you can find. You know, like, because I, the way I shot the movie was to avoid the time pressure of, well, we only have one day to shoot these four pages, so whatever alley is closest to where we are shooting scene five, we'll have to use. And I didn't want to be caught in that trap. And so I spent just an immense amount of time on Google Maps, literally on Street View, hmm. just virtually driving around LA looking for places that could fit my vision of it's not a post-apocalyptic future. What it is is like LA that's been in recession for 40 years or something like that, you know, with no, not enough water, too much crime, uh, the economy's in shambles. Uh, and yeah. And so I was like, but you know, Julie Kirkwood, my cinematographer and I, we, we have this sort of thing. Like we have a real belief that there's like a beauty in decay and there's a beauty in the rough and the ugly. Yeah. And we were trying to make it a beautiful, ugly film, a beautiful, gritty film. Like, and, and in that regard, like some of the movies that come out of like, especially these days, like uh, sort of the, the like guerrilla film movement that came out of London. I think Andrea Arnold, I think is a pr big example of that, but like this way in which you can shoot things and find a beauty in them. That's not contrary to them, but more like you can create beautiful images of things that are sort of run down. And like, so we just scouted all over LA. I mean, quite literally some of the places we shot because we were shooting, you know, over a long period of time on nights and weekends were gentrified while we were shooting and we couldn't even go back and get reshoots because they changed so quickly. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we had one situation, we had one night scene where I tried to go back to get one shot and in the intervening weeks, they had swapped out the old, um, like sodium lamps uh, in the streetlights with like new, you know, LED lamps. Yeah. Um, and, and, but yeah, my goal was like, you know, LA is a city that we see on film all the time. Uh, and we see the same places. And ironically, a lot of times they're not even presented as, as LA. And I wanted to do both. I wanted to very much be like, this is a movie about LA but I also want to show a bunch of places that we don't usually see. And so, yeah, that was really my goal was just to sort of really figure out like, what are the landscapes? Cause every time I could find a location that fit my vision of the future, that was one less like VFX shot that I didn't have to give to my brother to do. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm, and just to touch on something I said, I am really glad to hear you talk about like thinking about some of that VFX in the background, like in general, my vision of this future is that it's not a super high tech future that, you know, resources are not being put into earth. And so the future is a lot more mundane than in other films. That's definitely one of the things, you know, I, I do want to shake up the sci-fi genre a little bit. And one of my big goals was to make a movie that felt like it was being shot by a film crew in that time. You know, I think so many like VFX movies that we see these days, it's almost like the, they, the, the default reaction they want from the audience is, whoa, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, like every shot is like, look at this, look at that. And I even had this beef with certain period movies, like we, sh a period movie, sh you know, made in 2020 about like 1950. I feel like a lot of times they'll, they'll be like, look at that car, right. look at those outfits, look at those outfits. But if you go back to 1950, like there are so many things that the camera operator won't even adjust to let be in the frame because it's mundane. They don't even think about it, you mm -hmm. know? And, and my goal was like, I very much wanted to make like a, what felt like an indie movie from that future, you know? Uh, and so the idea being that with very few exceptions, um, we didn't want the VFX ever to be even the first thing you were looking at. You know, mm -hmm. there's a few that are opening the third or fourth shot in the movie is the shot of some rockets taking off. That was important. But mm -hmm. with, with, with very few exceptions, we wanted them to be in the background because it, to me, it was a world. The point of making the movie was not to sort of fetishize the VFX. It was to tell a story that I wanted to have set in the future. Yeah, and it was beautiful, and it really set the tone uh, of of the situation of of this future Earth. Um, I dig it, man. Thank you.
So you mentioned your your brother did the VFX. Yeah, you know, I um, by my, my brother and I again, as I furthering the theory that something you know happened as we were growing up in that house watching all those movies. My brother also went into film. He went to USC film school. I went to UCLA. <laughs> um, but he was his trajectory was differently. You know, I came to it from like writing and a real love of like some of this art house cinema. And he was the kid who had you know you know, the third or fourth, you know, Mac ever made, you know, generation of Mac ever made sitting on his, his, his desk at home as a high schooler, he was already 3d modeling, you mm-hmm. know, and he was drawing comic books and he went to film school. But when he got out, he self-taught himself all of these emerging tools at the time. Now they're, you know, very common of doing motion graphics and eventually visual effects. Mm-hmm. And so his day job, you know, he works as a you know high level creative director, motion graphic artist and visual effects artist. And like many of the professionals on the film, I got him, you know, he's my brother, but really the, the attraction to get him to work for very little money was to offer to let him do things he doesn't get to do. And, and, and that's something, you know, it's funny, like he, he, he's done some amazing work where he's super proud of, you know, if you go watch Star Trek two into darkness, the JJ Abrams movie, a lot of the stuff on the bridge, he has a heavy hand in doing, you know, um, of the enterprise there. Um, but also he spent a lot of time in creative advertising, just, you know, revising Helvetica to say coming out June 4th and having it explode afterwards, you know, and, or honestly even doing big movie visual effects and just being stuck with, there's a dominant aesthetic, you know, like everything should be blue. Everything right. should be a hologram like this, you know? And, and I was like, look, I want to make a different kind of movie. And he was really eager to step out of being one part of a pipeline and be able to say, I did everything in this. Mm-hmm. And so the film that you, that we you know that is out there that, you know, that after we leave, like, with the exception of a few rotoscope and tracks that we outsourced, every single frame and every job within that frame he did on one computer himself, and uh, yeah, and and he was a you know pretty essential artistic partner. Uh, and but the truth is, I think one of the reasons that I like to talk about it is also is that and he did that pretty much exclusively in After Effects. There's a little bit of Cinema 4D in there, but pretty much exclusively in After Effects. And I know that not everybody has a brother who's like a world-class visual effects artist, but the lesson I really took away from this film was more people can dare to make sci-fi because there are a lot of people, even if you can only find someone who can do set extensions, you know, adding some backdrops or just do interfaces, which are sort of on the simpler side of things. Like there are so many people out there who are like stuck in a job that pays them well, but they don't like just constantly doing the same kind of visual effects, some kind of motion stuff. If you offer them a creative project, you can get them. And I'm like so interested in more people daring to make sci-fi movies mm-hmm. uh, with visual effects even. And by the way, you don't even need visual effects. You know, go look at like Primer. Primer oh, yeah. is an amazing movie, you know, you know, that you could do entirely without visual effects. Uh, but I just, I really want there to be more voices in sci-fi, like on all fronts. Like, as you, as you pointed out, like stylistically, this movie is a break from sci-fi. And I, I want to see style differences. I want to see people of different backgrounds. That's obviously pretty important to me, you know, different identities, um, different genres uh, working in it. And I think sometimes it's this genre that we assume does, you know, we're not entitled to make, partially because the movies are so big that we see that get made in this genre. Mm-hmm. But there can be, be sci-fi. Like when I was growing up, like if you had told me that Star Wars and Marvel movies would become the biggest movies in the world, like first of all, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, uh, but second of all, I would have told you that I would have been thrilled. I mean, I feel like it was so not cool. My brother and I were so into Star Wars and Star Trek and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And it was and to think that we would like essentially inherit the earth, right? I mean, like my generation grew up and took over Hollywood. Oh yeah. Uh 
but the weird thing is like, I'm way less happy than I thought I would be, you know, um, it really like, and I really, you know, sometimes I say this and people think I'm bagging on all the movies. Like I'm not some, I'm not Martin Scorsese saying that like, you know, they're not cinema or whatever, but although I really do get what he means. Uh, like I like some of those movies. I like some of the, um, the, but I'm just disappointed that like they'd become the only face of speculative filmmaking hmm. and they're basically all just big action dramedies with spectacle. Mm-hmm. You know, and the only real variation is, are they PG and a little funnier or are they R rated and a little raunchier or harsher? You know, like there's like not a lot of um, variation. And I feel like a little bit of like what made sci-fi an amazing genre to me growing up is being lost. Uh, especially I think people feel like oh, the visual effects, like that's the domain of, you know, only these like super rich studios. But my like the one of the things I've been really trying to sort of hammer home as I sort of talk about the movie is no, like we, you know, we being this collective, like those of us that are not the few guys getting to direct big studio movies, like we too have as much right to work in this genre as them. Uh, and I think it's actually super important that we do. Yeah. And taking it in different directions like you did. I mean, Avengers, you know, everything's bright and beautiful and shiny. Yep. Um what you're doing is it's uh, it's more believable. It's it's more real. Um, yeah, it doesn't there were feel several forced, times, you know. Yeah, no. I mean, there were several times which my brother was like, "Look, I can do a fancier visual effect here, but we're, if we're assuming like we were doing like a sign in this sort of like futuristic like DMV like office of the Visa office, and like mm-hmm. he was like, look, I could do a I could do a prettier sign, but let's be honest." There's no way that that DMV like bureaucracy is going to have a fancier sign, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like and whereas like when you go see an Avengers movie, like literally every place they go was designed by a great modernist architect. You know what I mean? Like, um, mm-hmm. and, and we wanted to sort of a different future. And, you know, and the, the truth is like, by the way, I think that the Avengers like they're knocking it out of the park doing glossy and cool. Sure. And so I don't even see the need to compete with them. You know, in some ways, I feel like our job as indie filmmakers is. Uh, is not to figure out how to cheaply replicate Hollywood. Like somehow I think we're stuck in this contest sometimes. Like I figured out a way for 50 bucks to, you know, emulate this shot from the Avengers. And like, I do appreciate like the sort of like, you know, MacGyver-esque aspect of that, but really why compete? I, even I, as a pretty indie filmmaker, am very satisfied with how those big movies do what they're best at. So I think the thing we can add is to actually be doing things that are very different from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like it when I'm a big sci-fi fan. And you mentioned Primer. When that came out, I was blown away. I was like, wow. this!" And I, I think he, you know, edited that on his uh, his desktop or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and, and every once in a while, a movie comes out, like uh, Looper or something. Where yeah. it's, yep. it's just a little spin. And it's like your film. It's actually more about the characters um, and, uh, you know the situation they're in rather than, you know, Armageddon, we got to go, you know, shoot this meteor before it kills the world. Um, And that, that brings me to the actors. Uh, You got some great acting going on in here. Um, Could you just talk a little bit about the uh, casting process? Well, first of all, just thank you for complimenting that. I really like my cast makes me look so good. Like I, you know, one of the things I've realized about making indie films is, if you can give yourself again, if you try to avoid this, like we're going to shoot a whole film in 10 days, you know, and instead give yourself time, 
you can get good performances and you can get kinds of performance moments that compressed shooting doesn't allow you to get, you know? And so when I was casting the movie, I knew that I wanted to work in a way where I wasn't going to improvise the whole movie, but some of these scenes are improvised with a very, with a defined outline. But I knew that I wanted to make the kind of movie where the actors could try different things and, and have space for moments that didn't just drive the plot forward relentlessly. And, Mm -hmm. And and I also knew that I was look I, we we shot under the SAG low budget contract so I was paying them but I was paying them very little so I knew that I needed people who were really committed to the process that I was doing and and so I started really with a group of actors that I have worked with for years Brian Silverman who is the lead in my film uh, he was in my UCLA thesis film sixteen years ago mm-hmm. uh, and and we shot another web series in the intervening time but he's a guy who I've worked with for a very very long time. And just, you know, he believes in me and I really believe in him. And I mean, he's a real co-author of that character and, and, and shaping it. And I knew that Brian was on board. It was like this sweet spot of, you know, uh, he had never been the lead in a feature. Mm-hmm. And so I really said, look, like I'm going to I need way more time and commitment from you than the hundred dollars a day of the SAG contract really earns. But what I'm offering is you can be a real true co-creator and get to be the lead in this movie. And that was sort of my mantra for everyone. There was actually no one that I cast completely cold in this film because I knew I was paying so little and we were going to shoot sort of infrequently off and on. I basically drew on, you know, my quote unquote company of actors I'd worked with over the years and then their network. So several of the actors um, came through through Brian or through other actors that, that I knew. But, you know, I mean, I mean, Brian's the core of the movie. He's in almost every shot. And, um, and yeah, I think really, you know, uh, elevates the movie, you know, by, by how good he is. And, you know, I made a, I made a deal with him. I told him, you know, literally as often as possible, we would never move on if he wanted to do another take, you know? Um, and we could only do that because we were shooting in this sort of nights and weekends. Like it's okay if we don't get all this, we'll come back another time. We owned the camera so we could do that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, uh, Clay Wilcox, who plays the sort of like principal antagonist, is a guy who I met in film school. He was a good friend of one of my film school classmates. And again, he's a guy that I'd worked with for a while. And I just knew he was going to be the, the the antagonist in this film. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and he's I mean, he's he's one of these guys. who, like, you know, you see him pretty frequently pop up on network TV, you know, on a procedural or, you know, on an episode of Heroes or on that this kind of stuff. And um and again, like he's done more film work, but like, you know, he, he gets way fewer shots to be like the consistent sort of like, you know, main, you know, antagonist in a film than he should. And I was really, you know, passionate about giving him, to, giving that to him. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there was, the uh, there's one guy, sorry to interrupt, no, God, yeah. but uh, there's one guy, I, I thought I recognized one guy from Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's Bernie White. So that's an example of you know how that how these connections work. Uh, so I know Bernie only because Bernie was a friend of Clay and my friend John Morgan, who was in film school with me. Hmm. And I've known Bernie for years. We've never gotten to work together. You know, he does all sorts of things. He was in the Matrix sequels. You know, he's in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a great theater actor. You know, and yeah, and so that was the kind of thing where when it came time to shoot that scene. Uh, where he's in there, he plays a sort of this, this forger. Um, I, yeah, like what I would always do is I'd be like, okay, we're coming up. I want to need to shoot that scene. Who do I know? You know, who can I pull from? And he popped into my mind and, uh, and I was like, yep, like this is the, this is, uh, uh, this, he's going to be, he's going to be great in that role. And I called him up and he was like, yeah, happy to do it. Came out for a day, 
you know, and shot it. And he's wonderful too. He's again, he's a guy who's very used to sort of improving and like the way that scene goes down is, is not exactly as I wrote it, you know, and, and, uh, and I really enjoy working people like that. And like, or, you know, another, another great one is like Anthony Richardson who plays, um, Morgan. He's like one of the other big leads. He's a guy I met. He's also, he's a writer and a filmmaker. And I met him at a festival as a writer and a filmmaker and then realized he could act and thought he was amazing cast him immediately. And then his friend is Cesar de Leon who plays sort of one of the henchmen in the movie. And then Anita Lehman Torres who plays the sort of femme fatale character in the movie is someone that Brian met in acting class. And so the whole, like, uh, movie really was this sort of like spreading out of the web of connections that I had made in the, you know, 15 years I'd been in LA before I made the movie. Uh, and I really enjoyed that because, you know, a, I needed a shorthand. We were working so with so little money and we were working in this unconventional style. I'm sure I probably could have cast a complete stranger and brought them on board. But the truth was for this movie, for my first feature, it was nice to eliminate that one variable. Pretty much everyone who showed up knew me or knew one of the main actors really well. And so they came in already giving me the benefit of the doubt. Hmm. Yeah, and they all seemed to work in that world you created. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time on backstory. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the kind of director who, like, I don't do a lot of, like, in-depth, like, uh, I'm a very much believer in, like, saying very little on set. I think the thing I like I've learned and I don't know if I'm an expert yet, I'm still working on it, but the things I know that can get better performances are, I feel like giving them a lot of information to internalize before they show up mm -hmm. backstory, that kind of stuff. And then, um, honestly, I think that the best thing you can do for the actors is just to cast them so that you can legitimately tell them you are huge fans of them. Like I don't put anybody in the movie that I can't tell when they show up on the day of shooting being like, you are here because you are the person that I was dying to have be in this role. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't wait to see what you do with it. I feel like being their fan is like one of the biggest things. And then on set, you know, really telling them, look, the pressure's off. Like, let's play. Try five different things and don't even judge yourself. Just be in the moment. I'll put the best one in. You know, that's what I did in the film. And they love that. You know, we, we have, this is the kind of film where we did a lot of takes with very little waiting in between. So it's a, a lot of work in a day as opposed to the classic model of, short amount of shot with a lot of waiting in between. Like we didn't do a lot of lighting in this movie. It's mostly available light. And we just, we improvised or we, you know, tried things out. Um, or, you know, even when the scenes that were totally scripted, just giving them the freedom to be like, okay, you did it that way. What else you got? Or here's an idea for how to play it completely differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, that all gets combined together in the edit. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious just because it is, um, ha has some, um, you know, sci-fi, composite elements did you shoot this in 4k or what what type no, of camera know, i don't usually ask what type of camera you use but just for this i'm curious well you know I, I i do like to say it because i think it is a a real testament to the like cinematic skill of julie kirkwood my dp who the rest of the world has finally discovered you know she just shot destroyer with nicole kidman and oh. she shot a bunch of a couple of big tv pilots this year but we shot the entire movie on a first-generation Canon 7D. So that's a 2K DSLR. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that not, not to brag, but more to be like, we took that camera and made this movie. And again, uh, I don't think the movie is for everyone. But what I would say is like, go watch 10 minutes of it. And even if you don't like my movie, just take away the lesson of we didn't even have the fanciest camera. But by being selective, by being like, we will only shoot when the light looks great. Right. We don't have the time to light everything, so we're just going to wait for it to look good. Uh, 
we're not going to rush so that we have to shoot this scene in this white wall department because that's the only place we had on that Thursday. No, we're going to find the coolest location and wait till we can all get together and do that. By doing that, we created a movie that I don't, I actually, I don't think you can reverse engineer looking at the image and know that we shot it on 2K DSLR. Uh, you know, I think that Julie in particular just like really knew how to make it look cinematic. Uh, and, and the beauty though of shooting with a camera that small and simple was we shot all over LA and never pulled a permit. No, you know, we got harassed a couple of times by security guards mm -hmm. once or twice by the cops, but really many, many days of shooting all over the public, you know, space of LA never really, really impeded. Yeah. I like your style, man. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh yeah. About the shooting. Um, yeah, there's also, you know, a lot of it feels um, sort of handheld or steady cam, which yeah. I, I think also lends itself to the to the story you're telling. It's more it's more grounded, you know, even yeah. even some of the, you know, the special effects. If that was just locked off, eh, but yeah. you, you made it feel in the moment. And again, yeah, I think that comes from the idea of like, I really did want to make like an indie film made in the future. Um, mm -hmm. And I just like that style. I also think handheld, I think really helps the actors. We talk about handheld a lot of times uh, lending tone to a film, like, oh, it's gritty or more raw. And I, I agree with that. But I think something that people underestimate is handheld lets the actors be more free because, uh, you know, my one of my goals was I didn't want the actors to have any focus marks or any VFX marks they had to stand on at this point or this time or in this this square inch or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're handheld, if you have a good AC and a good operator, it doesn't matter if they take two steps to the left unexpectedly. The DP and the AC take two steps to the left, you know, and focus, you know, and and the beauty of handheld is that that sort of docu style is that you can move with them and, and tell them it's okay to try something. You won't blow the take, you know? And mm -hmm. even with the visual effects, I worked very hard with my brother. Like we spent a lot of time talking in advance, like what are the things that I can do so that I don't have to make constraints that are only for VFX, you know? And, and, and he taught me a lot about like, you know, there's a lot of freedom these days, especially with the advances in, even in After Effects, the ability to just create virtual camera tracking to be able to shoot something handheld and shaky and still put in a visual effect. Mm -hmm. Um, but I like the handheld style because I do think it's organic. I think it allows you to shoot in a way. But but my as you've seen from the movie, what I didn't want to do was actually shoot some sort of like just docu-esque sort of like, sure, it's organic, but it's kind of ugly and video camera-ish. Like there is this kind of movie uh, out there in the world. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, Deborah Granick does it very well. Uh, you know, I think that um, uh, Barry Jenkins does it very well, I think, where you can shoot handheld and 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 have some improvisation but still create beautiful images and to me that's the sweet spot yeah and you know you balanced it with um there a lot of times there's some beautiful uh sort of long shots um where yeah i i like i like i like to take some time sometimes to let things unfold yeah. uh i do think again you get good performances that way you, you can do a certain kind of visual and and again, it's, you know, that's something you don't always see in sci-fi these days. You can certainly look at the past. You know, if you go look at Solaris, for you know, like there certainly are sci-fi movies that use that kind of thing, but not a lot these days. And I was definitely interested in doing that as well. Yeah, it's very cool. Now, you've mentioned a few times that uh, this wasn't a 10-day shoot, um, nights and weekends over a period of years. 
Did that present any trouble as far as continuity with the actors, how they looked or anything like that? I mean, I would say that for me, it caused some problems with my morale, (laughs) Um, Mm. which is to say, like, this is what I thought was going to happen. I thought that I was going to get this wonderful group of actors and my DP, Julie, and my brother. Uh, We were all going to get together and on nights and weekends shoot a movie over like a six to nine month period. Mm. That's what I thought would happen. Um, and even then I was concerned a little bit about continuity. Like I remember a, a two days before we did our first shoot, Brian Silverman, the lead called me up and was like, Hey, what do you think about Jack having stubble? You think we can keep stubble consistent for like six to nine months? <laughs> uh, and I was, I weighed it and I was like, eh, let's go clean shaven. And I now think back and be like, Oh my God, that was like the best decision I ever made. Cause it wasn't six to nine months. It was actually pretty much, it was four years of nights and weekends. Wow. Um, and and so yeah, the the in terms of continuity of the actors, the best thing that we did was Brian literally in that bag he's carrying around in the movie. His clippers are his like electric shaver is in there, and so we would just show up to shoot. He'd throw on the wardrobe which is in that backpack. He'd do the put the three guard on the clippers, shave his head, <laughs> and he was good to go. Um, and he's the really only through line. The, the thing about the movie is that it's sort of modular. There are some recurring characters but you know about half the movie are one-off characters that he encounters and so with them continuity really wasn't an issue it really was with brian and the few main characters Mm -hmm. that yeah we took a lot of photos i definitely relied a lot on the actors a lot to remember what they had done nice uh and you know and again just that that basic directing stuff of like when we showed up sometimes it had been six months since some actor had been there and just helping them remember where we were what the space was uh and i feel honestly very lucky that I think it, it all worked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What, what got me thinking about the continuity and whatnot is there, there's a series of, uh, I don't want to call them flashbacks or memories or a, yeah. you know alternate timeline that uh, yeah. is informing the viewer. A lot of those are, are really nice and beautiful. I'm curious, uh, how much of that like was written in the script or did you say, all right, we need some flashback stuff. Let's right. go to this yeah. location and and do it. It's a mix of both. Um, there were certainly portions of the script. There's a sequence in the middle um, where Jack and his friend Morgan sort of have a conversation and we see some other footage. And there I had just written to the script that I was going to shoot some imagery of them hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a situation where I just knew with those two actors and with Julie, my cinematographer, that we could just show up on the day – wait for magic hour and then just shoot some stuff. And I, you know, sometimes I'm talking to them during the take or they're coming up with ideas and we're just grabbing things here and there. I knew that. And that was a, definitely a fully sort of like, I didn't know what was going to happen on the day, which is something that I really like to have be part of the process. I've sort of made this promise to myself that after having done some really overdetermined uh, short films, like I don't ever want to show up to set and not have butterflies in my stomach about what's going to happen. Like I like that feeling of not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so some of that was like that way. But then at the end, there's a montage at the end that's very important. You know, you've seen the movie. I'm not going to give away the entire, but there's a, there's a very important montage at the end. And there, uh, I'm very pleased that people actually sometimes ask me if that just was sort of randomly improvised or this and that. But I actually wrote that out pretty concisely because I had a way in which the past or present or alternate future or whatever it might be, I actually think it's open to interpretation, um, as you sort of hinted at. Mm-hmm. I knew how I wanted certain shots to literally even visually connect. And so those I I had sort of mapped out of my mind and I was shooting them a certain way to make sure that montage could flow how I wanted it to flow. Very cool. Yeah, it all it all definitely works. Um, Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, so what do you think? Uh, you're so uh, into Bollywood films. You're going to make a musical? I would love to make a musical <laughs> right now. I'm actually, you know, and, and the, the thing that I need is I need the, the musical equivalent of my brother, which is to say like, I need to find a collaborator mm. willing to sort of take a, you know, an indie film journey with me. And I need to, I, I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, this movie is my sort of sense of like what I want to do, like a statement I have about what I want to see in sci-fi. And I actually, I, I'm not ready to make it yet, but I've been thinking a little bit about like, yeah, what would, what do I want to say about the musical genre? You know, like what, what would my take on it be? So I don't think I'm close to doing that, but it is definitely one of the things that I would like to do is do some version of uh, a musical. Yeah. Well, I, I'd, I'd watch it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, musical, sci-fi, Bollywood, whatever, man. Um, you, you've proven that you can, uh, you know, blur the lines between genres. Um, so I'm pretty, Oh, speaking of music, uh, let's talk about the score. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I honestly feel like there is like a, a significant percentage of the audience who like the reason the movie works for them is because Shonda Dancy's score, uh, just makes my film so much better. <laughs> like she is someone, Shonda is someone who I knew sort of like, as someone who worked on a lot of my friends' movies, I distinctly remember hearing a cue that she wrote for a short film that my friend Ted Chung made and hearing this score and being like, man, like that is an incredibly good cue for a short, like a short film. I actually liked the short film a lot too, but like, I was like, whoever did that, like that's at another level. Mm -hmm. And when I got to this movie, like I, I had a very, I knew that I wanted the score to be minimalist and I knew what I wanted it to do, but I'm not someone who like hears the music in my head or anything like that. And I just knew Shonda was the person I showed her the rough cut and she was like, yes, like in a heartbeat. And I had her write the, there's an ending cue that I think in some ways, you know, as a filmmaker, when you watch your own film, you're always, you can't help but be critical of the choices you made and always thinking about like the gap between what you saw in your head and what you got. And I would say, but if there is one thing in the movie I mean, the visuals in general, I think I owe Julie a lot, but like there's one thing in the movie where I'm like, that is maybe even better than the thing I had in my head. It's the final piece of music that she wrote. Mm. Uh, and, um, and I, and I think it's because she got the movie. She really like she had a take on the movie. She watched it. She also did the sound design, which I'm a big fan of as well. She did that as well, but she's just an immensely talented composer, uh, works in a lot of different styles um, the one story that I love to share about that is, you know, when, when we were color grading the film, we had this great color, uh, grader, uh, Ian Veritek, who, who, um, uh, he, you know, he's done some of David Fincher's movies and, uh, we worked at a deal where Julie was doing the color on Destroyer with Nicole Kidman and we got sort of tacked on the discount rate at the end of that or the beginning of that. Uh, and he said this thing up front where he's like, look, you know, a, a lot of films come through. So as a colorist, like. I'm not really going to comment on the film. Like, I don't want to get up and like, do I think your film's good or bad? Like what I'm doing is I'm going to make these images awesome. And that was sort of his neutral position, but no joke. Like we get to the end of the movie and it's playing and he did sort of turn to me and out of the corner of his mouth to say, but that is a pretty good piece of music. (laughs) 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 And and, and I was like, it is, you know, I think I really, she, she really worked in this way of like, she followed the journey of that character of Jack and she wrote this music that she heard in her head. She plays the strings on it, you know, and, uh, it's, yeah, I really feel indebted to her. You had to wait so long, 22, uh, rejections from film festivals. But as you mentioned, you got distribution. Uh, it was Gravitas, right? You sold it to Gravitas. 
Yeah, I mean, they uh, they basically started tracking me as soon as I won the award at Sci-Fi London. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they put out a lot of genre films, and so they are, you know, they're not like uh, they're not showing up at all the festivals. But they are keeping tabs on what is playing at these sort of major horror, sci-fi, fantasy festivals. And so just that one win, I mean, honestly, even playing there, but just the win put me on their list. And then when the Berlin thing happened, that helped. And then I got a really good review from Film Threat. that was really helpful for me. And I had, I had brought on a sort of a, a sales agent to help me sort of find a distributor. And yeah, Gravitas sort of came forward and, you know, and they made an offer. And like, you know, look, the indie film business is not great these days. Uh, and they came to me. And what I did appreciate about them is they were very realistic. They, were, they told me things they could they could tell me what happened and things that wouldn't, you know, how to be realistic. And they offered me a minimum guarantee, which sad to say, like any upfront money these days is actually a novelty mm -hmm. in independent film distribution. If, if your movie does not have, if your movie does not have a movie star. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I, I, it's been very exciting though. Like having had all that rejection to be like, no, a legitimate distributor. I mean, they put out hundreds of films, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know, the film just launched, uh, you know, yesterday as of, you know, we're speaking today, like yesterday on Apple and Amazon and it's up there. And, uh, you know, I honestly, you know, check one off the bucket list. Like on iTunes, my film was there between, uh, it was right next to Terminator dark fate, you know, like <laughs> two gallery images. And I was like, all right, you know, like, nice. that's something, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And it, it, it has been like a, a real learning experience. Like I had never made a feature and I certainly had never distributed a feature mm -hmm. and really confronting like, yeah, this isn't just a short film that I'm going to put up on Vimeo. Like I want this to go out in the world. And as a feature, you know, your non-filmmaker friends, all they ask is, when is it going to be on Amazon? Yeah. When is it going to be on Netflix? You know, and to be able to just say with no caveats, like, well, you got to go to this obscure site or go to this on demand, you know, just to be like, nope, just look it up on Apple and Amazon. To be able to say that just feels so, it's such a relief to be able to say that, to be honest. Yeah, congrats. Um, also, oh, sorry. Okay. Well, well, congrats. And also congrats. Uh, you also pulled off something a lot of indie filmmakers would like, which is, a theatrical release in, in LA and New York. Was that part of the Gravitas deal or? You know, so when I was working with them, like there were scenarios with different distributors where I could have taken a higher upfront um, money and just gone straight to video. But I, you know, I really worked with them and I was like, look, I would really like to do the theatrical. And in all honesty, I thought the, the one week theatrical, we ended up, we, you know, it's really hard to book movies. We didn't get, were we not able to find a place we could book in New York, but we did do it in LA. And I thought that it was just going to be, you run for a week just to drum up some more publicity, just to legitimize the film a little bit more, just to get a few reviews. And we got that. That did happen. But actually, I had underestimated just how many people would come to the screenings. I knew the first night would be great. You know, we have our cast and crew come out. But I've been going, you know, every night to, as the film plays. And it's been this, like, version for me and Brian and Anita and Anselm and, and, and Clay and the other actors and Julie and my brother and Lori who edited the film. Like, it's been this – and Shonda too. Like, it's this mini version of this is your life because you're standing there in the lobby and three, four, five people who are coming into the crowd are people you know you didn't even know were going to come. You know, I had former students from when I was teaching, you know, different institutions. I had professors from film school. I had wow. film school friends and college friends just sort of come in the door. And so almost every night that it's played, 
we've had good audiences, but some percentage of the audience is just like some person from your life that came out to see it because that theatrical thing made it an event, you know, made it something they're going to go see. Mm-hmm. And I am very excited that people are going to see it on digital, but it was so cool to just like be able to watch the film and talk about it afterwards, you know, set seven days in a row, uh, with, people that I care about who care about me or interested in my career and are friends of the people who worked on the movie uh, and sort of watch it that way. Like I'm a big fan of theatrical experience and I'm, I'm actually very, very glad that I sort of like passed on the, the bigger upfront money to sort of do this route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's pretty awesome. Now, did you, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, did you get to pick uh, which theater? Uh yeah. You know, it is slim pickings these days. Like I feel like the number of places in LA that will play a truly independent film, you know, um, are, are very low. You know, like the the downtown independent will do it nowadays. You have to four wall four wall out there for sure, but they'll do it. Mm-hmm. And the, the Lemley theaters say they'll do it, but the real truth is, unless you're going to pay their full four wall fee, they're so committed to playing other films, you know, from studios that it's hard. And so the arena cinema lounge is you know, honestly a theater that I wasn't familiar with until about a year ago. when some of my other friends, all of my film school class, like three of us have now made features. And like, we've just, we're all slowly discovering what's the current state of distribution. The arena cinema lounge is this small theater in Hollywood, uh, that, you know, is booked wall to wall seven days a week with indie films doing these kind of runs. Uh, they're all over the map, different kinds, different genres, documentaries, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, exploitation films, serious, you know, uh, political documentaries, like, uh, and yeah, it's really one of the few places centrally located doing a real one week run that you can find. And I'm kind of grateful that they're there, you know, along with the downtown independent and with the Lemways that do a little bit of that. Cause it's really hard to do it otherwise without literally four wong it at a pretty enormous expense. Yeah. I, I can imagine. Well, that's fantastic. Um, uh, is there anything else you want to touch on? I mean, I guess just to say that, uh, uh, you know, I'm in the process of like thinking about my own projects, but another big thing that's important to me is this idea that I've been talking about, about like really wanting to make sure that people think about like they can make sci-fi films and also that they should be consumers and viewers of different ranges of sci-fi. So I just, I have a newsletter I've been doing for about a year uh, about indie sci-fi and honestly like diversity in genre films in general, where I sort of, do different picks in this arena uh, and also of course talk about my own projects and so if people want to follow that newsletter they can go to my website just alimhossein.com and find it there uh, but also in the end honestly to say thank you to you I feel like one of the most wonderful parts about this process has been getting to sort of find these podcasts and sites and uh, and communities supporting independent films I think that these days like the the marketplace for indie film is not in the best shape, but I think the support and interest in indie film is really strong. So thanks for being part of that. Well, hey, man, thank you. You want to let the people out there know uh, where they can reach you online? Yeah, so my website is alimhossein.com, A-L-E-E-M-H-O-S-S-A-I-N.com. But really, you can find me on Twitter just with my first name, Aleem, A-L-E-E-M. And on Instagram, uh, my full name, A L E E M. H-O-S-S-A-I-N. Uh, and yeah, through my newsletter or my Instagram, my Twitter, uh, hit me up. I'm always excited. I just published a big article on No Film School as well. You can just look up my name on No Film School about the making of this movie if you want to hear more. Awesome. Well, thanks, Aleem. I, I wish you the best of luck in your filmmaking career. And like I say, I look forward to uh, seeing what you make next. Thank you so much. Well, that's that. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes, IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter, at IndieFilmGrit. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit? <laughs>